Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So after an extended absence due to COVID, we return to you with an episode on the brilliantly gruesome and entertaining documentary Hexen, released in 1922. Conceived and directed by Danish filmmaker Benjamin Christensen, it's a history of witchcraft from medieval times to the present day, featuring some wonderfully fun and creepy dramatizations of witch hunts and satanic rituals. So yeah... Morgan has long COVID. I temporarily had short length COVID. It's been a long time since our last episode. We definitely want to do an episode on Avatar 2 as a follow-up to our very popular episode on Avatar 1. I have seen it. Morgan has not had a chance to see it yet. We cannot promise when that's going to happen. But Avatar fans, keep your fingers crossed. We will return. And we're also, of course, going to do a best of 22 films episode at the beginning of January, as we do every year. It's always a really popular episode. And uh, we love to do little lists. And there's always some fun surprises in there. But um, wait till the first week of January for that, probably. And in the meantime, to celebrate the holidays, what could be better (laughs) than a 100-year-old horror documentary reenacting witch trials? (laughs) Yeah, I um I did a little post on our Patreon just being like, here's what's going on, here's what we have coming up. And I said, like, maybe we'll get to do a Christmas episode, but, you know, that didn't happen. We're counter-programming. It is what it is. But I was speaking to a um, friend of the podcast, Charlotte, who was very excited we were doing this movie. And I was like, this really should be a Halloween episode, but, like... Again, it is what it is. This has been a very chaotic year. And she was like, spooky stuff is appropriate at Christmas too. And I was like, I will take it. Like, that sounds (laughs) fine to me. I have to say, it's one of our most Christian films that we've ever... uh... (laughs) You know what? That is true. So I watched this a few months ago before I got COVID. Needless to say, this strange documentary in quotes from 1922 was not like top of my list of things to watch when I got sick. So it's not as fresh in my mind as it will be for Gav, who watched it quite recently. But it had been one of those movies that I had kind of just always meant to watch. It's a classic. It also has this sort of cult status that we'll talk about. But nothing could have prepared me for... (laughs) for what this movie actually is and does. And I think there is just so much going on in terms of formally what he's doing, which is pretty radical, especially given that it was made 100 years ago. The way he's interacting with history in a pretty provocative way. But most of all, the fact that this movie is definitely, I would say primarily an excuse for Christensen, the director, to just stage lots of horny stuff <laughs> and be like, I'm making a historical film. But it's like, no, you just want to put a bunch of horny shit in your movie. <laughs> I have to say, this is one of the best silent films to just watch with a bunch of friends. Because obviously with a lot of silent films, it's like, sure, there's no dialogue, but you should be really focusing on this and like embedding yourself in the story. Don't talk through it. But with this, I think it's okay to talk through it and heckle a little bit. Parts of it are kind of like a lecture with slides. Parts of it, as we've said, are these dramatizations, which involve some wild special effects. But um, there's a lot going on with this man psychosexually in a very fun way. (laughs) And also there's lots of fun little gremlins and demons and stuff. Well, you're also invited to think about him and his motivations yes. because he literally opens the movie with a like really metal shot of his own intense face and is like 
here I am. This is me. And this is my movie. And when I watched the movie and this was how it opened, I was like, yeah, dudes rock. Like, <laughs> He was I'm apparently into really into the fourth wall because I read that one of his later films includes a scene where he is explaining a miniature of the set to one of the actors on screen in the drama. I mean, I love an experimenter. <laughs> well, and obviously 1922 is incredibly early in the history of cinema throughout the first 20 years of the 20th century, you have really short Nickelodeon style movies that were coming out of like the Edison factory that were just like a couple minutes long. And then that expands into longer narrative features like the great train robbery or like the early Buster Keaton and other comedy actors making shorts that are like 20 minutes that would sort of like you'd watch a bunch of them at once. I'm not an expert in this period. So I don't have a strong sense of like when exactly the longer narratives started happening. I mean, there's a lot going on in Germany. Yes. So this is a Danish filmmaker. You can give more of a biography of him in a second. But basically, at this time, the two countries that I think of the most, which doesn't mean there wasn't stuff going on in other places. And obviously, like, the history of Soviet film is also really interesting. But like, you have Hollywood film, which is doing lots of like the comedy shorts that I was just talking about, as well as melodrama stuff. And Birth of a Nation, uh, the D.W. Griffith movie, famously very racist, but also very influential in terms of like narrative filmmaking, comes out in 1915, which is actually a little bit earlier than I thought. And that's, of course, not a comedy, that's a drama. And that influences American silent film in a huge way. Simultaneously in Germany, you have German expressionist film like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu, which we have done an episode on. Nosferatu is also from 1922. And I think what's interesting about Nosferatu is you can see that there are a lot of techniques being developed or used in that movie, but also certain limitations technically, like the camera doesn't move all that much. But in any case, all of this stuff is sort of building off of each other in terms of like building up what narrative film can be. And then by the end of the 20s, when sound comes in, silent films had become incredibly sophisticated in terms of like their visual style. So in 1927, F.W. Murnau's film Sunrise, which is still incredibly renowned, and unbelievably technically just like dazzling, like the stuff the camera does in that movie is amazing. And then The Passion of Joan of Arc from France is in 1928. And all of that kind of makes sense as a continuity, even if you don't know a ton about silent film, which I don't. Like, I'm kind of giving this little lecture, but, like, I'm really a neophyte in this area. And then you watch Hexon, and it's like, this guy is just completely out on his own limb and using some of the techniques, obviously, that these other filmmakers are experimenting with and developing because he's also making a movie. But... There's so much going on in this movie, especially in terms of the fourth wall, that feels just, like, unrelated to all of that in a way that's kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like he's making a far more modern style of documentary or, like, YouTube video essay kind of situation. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, just to give some background on him, Benjamin Christensen, born in 1879, he briefly studied medicine but then shifted to acting and opera singing. He didn't succeed at first, but then he went into film. So his film acting debut was in 1911, but he was much more successful as a director. He directed his first feature film in 1914, which is very early. 
And this is easily his best known movie. Like this is iconic. It became a cult hit. And I've not seen his other movies, but as far as what I've read is concerned, there's certainly respect for his earlier films from the silent era, but he kept making films into the 40s and it seems like maybe they kind of weren't as interesting. So in 1924, he co-starred in the film Michael, which is really famous for being one of the most like overt gay movies of the silent era. And he also moved to the US because MGM was recruiting European directors. And it kind of seems like that's maybe where his career just went in a different direction, because instead of making these more experimental films in Europe, he was then in the Hollywood studio system where he was doing more conventional dramas right up until the 1940s. But with this movie, this was a hugely expensive film for the time. It was funded by a Swedish studio and filmed in Denmark. It was the most expensive Scandinavian film of the time, which is hilarious because it's so experimental. It kind of shows you what the film industry was like in Northern Europe because it was just like very artistically avant-garde. But um, supposedly the genesis of this project is that he came across a copy of the Malleus Maleficarum in like a secondhand bookstore and then just spent two to three years obsessively researching witchcraft and necromancy, which I just absolutely love. How much do you know about the Malleus Maleficarum? Not very much. A okay. little bit. But our listeners could could do with an explanation. So okay. take it away. So it's basically, it was published originally in the mid-15th century, and it was essentially the handbook on how to find and then try witches and like people who were doing Satanism and stuff throughout Renaissance Europe. It wasn't a religious text. It was used by secular courts. And for the context of this movie, obviously this movie, this book is referenced in gajillions of horror films and stuff. Another little detail of it is that, that is relevant here is that um, it's obviously about like mostly female witches. The title of the book is feminine, like it's Maleficarum, which would be like a witch instead of a wizard. So right off the bat, he's like, these women are terrible, which is kind of what most of this film is about, analysing the idea of mass hysteria with female witches. But also it was written by a guy who is just in the same lineage as this filmmaker, because it was just this weird guy who put all his like weird little fetishes into a book about why he thought women were witches and like, oh, these people are taking the devil's sacrament. And it's like, yeah, obviously all this stuff was part of the cultural landscape in medieval and renaissance Europe. Europe and there was loads of Christian beliefs about demons and possession and stuff, but it's definitely a book that's written by a weird little guy, much in the same way that this is a film made by a weird little guy. <laughs> yes, and also crucially, I mean, we should go into more of the details of what is actually depicted in the movie in a minute, I think, but because this is being made in 1922, Christensen is connecting this history of witchcraft trials and persecution of women, which is a very serious historical topic and one that's kind of in vogue at the moment. There have been several nonfiction books kind of examining various episodes in history in terms of like the sexism, obviously innate in this practice, because I'm sure most of the people listening to this are familiar with, you know, <laughs> The basics of how witch trials or persecutions worked, but like, if someone decided you were a witch, there was really nothing you could do about it, because they would just be like, well, we're gonna drown you. And if you float, then you're a witch, and then we're gonna kill you. But like, if you've drowned, then you're not a witch, but you're dead. So like, there there are a bunch of sort of tests like that, that no one can really pass. But he connects that to hysteria, which, of course, is this 
psychological phenomenon in the late 19th century and is basically arguing that this is another way to marginalize women. But he doesn't seem as interested in actually making that argument as, again, like, the horny stuff. But, again, like, the fact that this movie is being made right after the First World War, when psychoanalysis is becoming really mainstream because of shell shock, I think is significant and, like, makes sense that that would be something that would be kind of in the air and in the minds of people. And I think a lot of the arguments he kind of gestures at in the movie are interesting and compelling. It's just, again, that, like, the vibe is kind of that that's not his primary interest. I mean, you know, it can be both. Yeah. We are, of course, psychoanalyzing him, but it's, like, it's this interesting crossover point between early 20th century psychoanalysis and discussions of mental illness and also early 20th century feminism and the kind of late 19th, early 20th century obsession with occultism, which was very big in Scandinavia and Germany at the time and Britain, which we discussed in length in our Midsummer episodes. If you want to go back and listen to our Midsummer episode, there's a lot of crossover points there. But you look at this film and you're like, oh, it's a really weird project. And it's like, well, there's a reason why it got funded up the wazoo in Sweden in 1922. And it was because they knew that lots of people were going to be interested in watching a weird, creepy movie about the history of witchcraft because it was a popular topic and remains a popular topic. (laughs) Yes. And I think it's very easy for us in terms of the more contemporary psychological stuff contemporary in the sense of like late 19th, early 20th century psychoanalytic questions. Obviously, there were problems in the way that women were treated in that context as well. But I think it's easy for us to look at that period and be like, oh, they just said all those women were hysterical. And like, they were just all being really dismissive. And in fact, the way that mental health works (laughs) is that a lot of these conditions kind of change with the times, which isn't to say that there isn't obviously biological components to something like depression, of course. But hysteria was a real phenomenon that people were experiencing, right? And because it becomes a social thing that is understood, then that's kind of how it manifests in people. And you can say the same thing about the sort of like, mass hysteric outbreaks among the girls at Salem, right? These things change with our understanding of ourselves and science and our bodies. And so I think he is kind of trying to take all of this seriously. It's just that then he'll be like, let's show some flogging. And you're like, <laughs> great. Like, <laughs> There's so much just pure entertainment value in the reenactments, which are just so well-conceived, but also really grody. I mean, to go into the actual bulk of the film now, the first section, it's basically separated into chapters. So it's like a video essay where he is giving commentary, which is on text title cards. Obviously, like a lot of older silent films, it doesn't really have an official score. I think probably it had like a sort of soundtrack that was put together from pop classics at the time. I watched the Criterion Restoration or something, which has a really cool score of like very famous classical music, but the music is not really the focus. It's just like you get text from him telling you what's happening. And then the first section launches in with literally just like a university style slideshow. So it's kind of this combination of loads of copies of woodcuts and stuff from medieval 
images of witches and sort of Hieronymus Bosch and pictures of hell and stuff. And then he's put together like an actual lecture where you can see his hand holding one of those pointer sticks to point at things where he's built like an image of like the cosmology of ancient Egypt where he's talking about like, oh, this is what the ancient Egyptian afterlife looks like. And I was like trying to think back to my university lectures on the ancient Egyptian (laughs) kind of landscape of the spirit realm and being like, is this accurate? Like, I don't remember how accurate this is. Because the the great thing about this movie is like, it's very authoritative, but hilariously poorly sourced. (laughs) So a lot of it will feel very familiar. Like, you're not going to learn anything from watching this movie because like, we all have absorbed general information about Christian witchcraft paranoia just from pop culture. But it's just presented in such an interesting way to our eyes that it's just so entertaining all the way through. Once they get past this first section where he's kind of explaining what he perceives as like the origin concepts of witchcraft and Satanism and demons, like he's got a bit of Babylonian stuff going on there. He's got some Mesopotamian demons. There's a brief cameo from the demon from the Exorcist who is Mesopotamian. But then he kind of goes into this deeper discussion about medieval culture's reaction to witchcraft, which is where these dramatizations hit in. So basically he just like fully launches into a series of short films that are like historical dramas. So one of them is about this woman who gets a love potion from a witch so she can seduce this friar. It's also like, why does she want to be dating this friar? He's just depicted as this like glutton who has no interest in anything apart from eating. So it's like, why do you want him to be interested in you? Like he's not, he's like, what's he got going for him? I guess maybe he's got like a good monastery to live in or whatever, but um, they're very fun in a sort of classic European silent film acting way but I really enjoyed the casting because he's recruited some really fantastic crones to play some of these witches they're very real and he built these amazingly detailed sets that are full of horrible little props so there's sort of skeletons hanging from the ceiling like animal skeletons bits of weird potion you know live toads and snakes that are clearly going to go into the witch's brew they're like fully like dropping babies into potions and stuff (laughs) and they're so slimy and gross and he filmed it all at night apparently or a lot of it at night so it has this sort of genuine darkness that feels very real while also being lit very well so like it looks great but it just visually those kind of early things where you're seeing his idea of what a witch's cell looks like it's so nonsensical and fictionalized but so good as a horror movie (laughs) and part of what is interesting about what he's doing is that it becomes clear as you keep watching though he never exactly articulates this which i think is really smart is that you're watching like the popular idea? Yeah, of what you're a watching witch is. the medieval fantasy. Yes, he's not saying this is what it's like. He's like, this is what they thought it was like. Right, and so you have these great old crones who are like rubbing their hands together and cackling, and like throwing frogs into you know whatever, and so that both makes a smart point and allows him to go way over the top both with the witches and with the sex stuff which is quite cartoonish at the beginning as you said like the stuff with the friar it's like what like i don't i mean it's very much the sort of just like renaissance sex comedy thing where some maid has got a love potion to seduce the friar this film also has nudity which is part of the reason why it was censored in many countries including obviously the u.s although mostly it's like you know a nude woman's back but the sexual stuff is 
less to do with like literally here's a depiction of sex and more to do with a lot of BDSM stuff. There's a lot of sort of flagellating nuns and monks. There's this amazing sequence. One of the little dramatizations is about the witch trials and accusations. So there's this woman who's accused of being a witch and part of the accusation is that this monk has dreamt of her seducing him, like kissing him on the hand and stuff. And then he informs someone and he has to be punished. And the way this is shot is so amazing because it's like, he's really guilty and he's reporting on this woman, but he has this sort of ecstatic expression that the camera cuts to while he's being whipped. So it's very focused on the reaction shots. And it's like, that is like unmistakable kink material. It's not just like depicting someone being whipped, which you see in, um, what's that like classic film about the Black Plague we both watched recently. Seventh Seal. Yeah, The Seventh Seal, which is like a fantastic classic medieval black and white film where it's just like, this is how horrible it was and loads of people are like in this fucked up cult where they're self-flagellating. With this film, it's all about, yes, he's in agony, but don't you want to see it up close, you know? (laughs) And like a weeping nun in a similar position. And there's also the torture instrument situation. They're very into their torture instruments, which like famously a lot of the kind of witch trial stuff was kind of made up by kinky Victorians. The Iron Maiden is like this completely fictional concept, which was just made up by weird guys in the 19th century but he has all of these torture instruments that were supposedly used to interrogate accused witches and there's this one amazing little cutaway scene with the thumbscrews where there's like this actress and the text on the screen from the director is like one of our actresses was so entertained by the thumbscrews that she demanded to use them i won't tell you what secrets she gave away under torture and then there's like a scene of her putting them on and like laughing and looking like she's really entertained which to be honest if i saw some thumbscrews i would kind of be like morbidly curious but it's just like so funny that that's the cutaway for the demonstration and then they go back to like shooting scenes of someone being like stretched on a rack over a fire or something <laughs> Yeah, the example you pull out of like the modern actress being like, I'm just so titillated by the thumbscrews is a perfect example of how intentionally the movie is playing with like the pornographic elements that it is deploying while also being like, but we're going to pull back right at the right moment. And this is also a movie that's coming out not that long after like Victorian pornography was very popular. And I don't know the specifics of that in Denmark or Sweden, but obviously in the United Kingdom, this is the most famous period of everyone pretending to be super repressed on the surface. And then everyone's just like a horny maniac (laughs) beneath, right? So basically the idea that this wasn't something that people would have known about I mean, obviously there were people who were totally clueless, like lots of women, but um, clearly this guy knows what he's doing. I mean, also like having done some, I mean, looked a bit into the sort of coverage of this film. A lot of the coverage is just like, ah, yes, it was censored at the time due to nudity. And I'm like, yeah, that's why it was censored. But like, I feel like there's more going on here. Well, this is the classic thing with the code in the 1930s, but also with the Victorian period, which is that many, many people living, again, I can really speak to the UK because that's what I know a lot about, were kept completely in the dark about how sex worked. Didn't know anything. I mean, young women, especially from like upper or upper middle class families, were not supposed to know 
anything. And so you could sort of live in a world where that information was not available to you, or even if you're like a respectable critic at Variety or whatever, and obviously like, you know, know what sex is, the implications of various things in these movies aren't going to be read in the right way. And then there's a whole other group of people who are like, yeah, I know what that fucking means, right? <laughs> like, And of course, to us in 2022, it's all very legible. But so much of culture in that like, hundred year span is about being legible in two ways, basically. Although Christensen seems to not really care, like, not really care. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna show a witch orgy, which is the most sort of like, out there. Thing, I was watching this know. with one of my friends and she was like laughing so much at like those phallic butter churning scenes. <laughs> Some of the witches will fly on like a butter churn instead of a, a broomstick, although they're like both phallic. If you've ever seen a butter churn, they're phallic enough that they were featured in like a sexy Eurovision dance, so. <laughs> <laughs> but simultaneously in the movie, he does show people who or women who are genuinely persecuted yeah. or severely mistreated. And some of those sequences are quite upsetting, partly because, as you said, he's cast these really normal people, some of whom are really old. So the two that really stuck out to me are there's one where like a woman is giving birth, I think, and there are all these other sort of like people around and there's like an old lady who just like works in the house and they just like decide that she's a witch because someone has said like there's a witch nearby and she's poor and they're like, well, you're a witch, so we have to persecute you. And he shows the the way that that information, information in quotes, travels through all of these people in this family and the class disparity between person who's being persecuted and all the other people and also the like genuine paranoia amongst the persecutors like they are genuinely really afraid i mean they have like an old lady in the stocks which is really yeah upsetting because you see how vulnerable she is and like she's really old and yeah and there's a younger woman who like has her hair shaved off which was a thing that happened and is put in prison and is like being mistreated and i I mean, she's the one who basically gets blamed for seducing a monk while he is, like, dreaming about her. So it's like she's done nothing. Yeah, and that is the other side of the titillating qualities of the movie, right? Or the movie being like, we're going to let you into this secret and, like, it's going to be fun and horny is showing that this sense of shame exists and can have really negative consequences for women who are just like happen to be there, right? And I think specifically the hair is a huge component to that feeling of shame. Of course, there's a long history of the symbolism of women's hair and when it is taken away, that that's like the most sort of violating sort of symbolic thing. But also the sense of like these male religious figures having all of this power, but also being, like, afraid of their own sexuality, right, is all connected to these bigger ideas in the movie, including that scene where the monk is getting whipped for having sexual fantasies or thoughts, right? That clearly these people are having these thoughts, but it's forbidden. But then, like, it just becomes this 
the sort of like problem that can't be escaped except by punishing the women who are supposedly making it happen. Yeah, and then he has this final sequence at the end where he sort of ties it up with his overall philosophy, which is he's kind of talking about how it's all about misinterpretations of what we in the modern era of 1922 would perceive as mental illness and then he kind of does some dramatizations in the modern day so like the main one that I remember is he has some stuff about like somnambulism but he also has this section where it's this woman who is a kleptomaniac and she's sort of compulsively stealing things and the film and the viewers are expected to understand why she's doing this and like she gets caught and then she kind of tells this shopkeeper tearfully, like, if I get arrested again, my family's going to send me to a sanatorium. Ever since I lost my husband in the war, I can't stop stealing things for no reason. Like, I don't want this stuff. So it's kind of talking about this fairly kind of simplified explanation of this compulsive mental illness. And then it kind of goes into modern echoes of the stuff that he depicts throughout the film so he like talks about like oh a modern fortune teller is really no different from when people were visiting a witch 500 years ago which is true and also he kind of goes into like here's some modern treatments so like some people go and go to psychoanalysis and then he has this little scene with hydrotherapy which i think potentially is going to be a bit illegible to a lot of modern viewers but this was a period when hydrotherapy was very in so there's this scene where this woman kind of goes into this big shower. At this point, loads of people were just going to a spa where you'd have loads of weird fucked up spa treatments, not fun ones. And that would supposedly cure your mental illness. And it's like, it wouldn't. It was another way to torment people usually, but very popular among the rich. Yeah. I mean, there were periods where mostly women who were institutionalized would just be like put in a bath with like a cover up to their neck. So only their heads were poking out for like days at a time. And they were like, this will cure you. FYI, if you want to see a really silly film that's also extremely entertaining about hydrotherapy. Gore Verbinski of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise traded off on his studio power to spend zillions of dollars on a film called A Cure for Wellness, which stars Jason Isaacs as a guy who's basically, if you imagine Dracula owned a hydrotherapy spa on the Alps, and it has like dozens of scenes where he's just got like these tanks of snakes that he's putting people into. It stars Mia Goth because she's got to be in all of those films. A real banger of a film. I wouldn't describe it as quote unquote good, but it really, it really had the concept down. <laughs> uh, I did not know that that was what that movie was about. And yeah, one that... of the many films where Jason Isaacs puts people in tanks, and I have watched all of them. <laughs> But yeah, I think the like move to connect all of these historical things he's been depicting to the real world is really interesting and if not completely persuasive because again, he does sort of tarry in the horny stuff a little bit <laughs> a little bit too much. Feels like he's making a pretty bold argument for the period, not that people in 1922 were like, we all believe in witches, but it's not like everyone was a self-proclaimed feminist at this point. Yeah. And also he was not speaking to an audience of people who'd all watched The Exorcist. So I'm sure a lot of this was entirely new information to like normal viewers. Yeah. And I think also just the formal properties of the movie, which we talked about more at the beginning, the way he like pulls all of it together at the end I think to us as people who have watched lots of documentaries, not that you can really call this like a documentary per se, but... I mean, it's definitely a video essay, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a video essay style documentary. 
I would imagine that would have been quite bold and thrilling to a lot of viewers at the time who weren't totally put off by by a lot of the subject matter. And yeah, I mean, I would be curious to know more about what was sort of happening socially in Denmark and Sweden in terms of like the feminist stuff. I didn't do that research because I have long COVID as previously discussed, but certainly in the US where this was banned, you know, this is a period where, you know, women get suffrage, but there's also like a backlash to that. And also like around 1920 is when we were getting this massive glut of movies that are about young women acting out and then being shamed. Yes, absolutely. Like throughout the 20s. Yeah. But women also have more freedom due to economic opportunity. So it's like, it's just a very interesting period for what is happening to women in the West, both in sort of both directions. And I think this movie is, has its sort of finger on the pulse in that way. But you also can't, (laughs) can't quite get away from the fact that he's like, but look at this hot lady with the thumb screws. (laughs) I mean, I really appreciate I mean, this format generally, but like kind of the video essay format makes it a lot easier for the audience member to question the sources and like question the concept of bias because I think a lot of people just watch documentaries and they're like, well, this is a documentary, it must be true, which is of course not the case. And like sometimes you'll get really big documentaries like My Octopus Teacher. I don't know if you watched that, but like I remember that being so acclaimed. Yes. (laughs) The way the story is told in that has like such a bias and a slant and it fails to psychoanalyze the protagonist of the story enough. Like it's a movie about this guy who becomes really obsessed with this octopus and it's portrayed in this really quite shallow and also very positive light. And it's like, well, actually he seems like probably there's a lot of issues at play here and it's actually like he's maybe even stalking the octopus (laughs) or perhaps it's like five different octopuses and he can't tell the difference because they're freaking octopuses. But anyway, when it's like presented as like a documentary, it's harder for people to like, get into that more critical mindset. Whereas like when you're watching a YouTube video essay, which is a very popular format, you can hear the person or see the person and you immediately know who it's coming from. And with this, it's like some of the stuff he's saying is like so obviously biased because like he is just making stuff up, but it's very transparent about that. And he is just coming at you with, here's this stuff I found, which I find very pleasant in a way. I do think that our ability to be like, well, this guy's obviously coming from his own specific weird place was oh, probably less absolutely. available to people in it's a very No, it's a completely modern viewpoint. And also, yeah. like, basically documentaries didn't exist at this point. You know, right. lots of people yeah. would see movies of stuff that happened in real life, but it wasn't really editorialized. It was just like, oh, here's footage of something somewhere. And this was just, the format was extremely revolutionary. And indeed, it's not like there's a lot of movies out there that are a combination of video essay, lecture, and dramatization. He's having a lot of fun with it. Yes. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the revival of this movie in the 60s? Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. So like I was looking up responses to it. It did come to the US in the late 20s. It was reviewed in the New York Times and in Variety. There's a great quote from Variety Review I found online that just says, wonderful though this picture is, it is absolutely unfit for public exhibition. (laughs) So it's this review that just sort of compliments (laughs) how impressive the film is on an artistic level and it's like, but it's filth. (laughs) But then it seems like it was kind of circulating. It's not one of these films that was lost in particular. It was apparently popular among the surrealists in the early and mid 20th century. You'll be shocked to hear they were very into it. 
But then it got this more official re-release in 1968. So it was an edited version of the film. I think it was shortened, which often happened. And it had audio narration by William S. Burroughs, which is a true match made in hell. And I found a couple of reviews of it from the late 1960s, one of which was in the LA Times. The other one is from an Alabama newspaper. And the LA Times one basically has this attitude where it's like, this movie is so funny. It's kind of talking about it as if it's the Rocky Horror or something. So it's this sort of knowing cult film situation where it's like I think you'll find this entertaining and charmingly quaint because it's like not really racy but still really fun because you get to see witches but then this other review I read took it a lot more seriously and was kind of talking about even though it seems absurd to censor something for just like a bit of nudity it takes it more seriously on an artistic level which I think is correct and also remarks that it had an x rating which is intriguing but it could just mean that it was too obscure for the raters to really be that invested but um, an x rating is typically what went to stuff which had you know, more explicit sex or stuff that was deemed too dangerous for an R rating at the time. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, actually, because America is terrified of sex. Yes. So. And also, crucially, terrified of, you know, the Catholic Women's League, like, suing them, you know, because obviously there are going to be religious complaints about this because it's literally just depicting people going to a satanic mass and kissing Satan's buttocks. So... <laughs> Yes. Even in the late 60s, I could see the ratings bar just being like, we are not going to get involved with this. So yeah, I obviously haven't seen the William S. Burroughs version or even clips of it. William S. Burroughs, not a good person. Though I would be curious to see some clips, but I think it's Apparently really Apparently inter- it had a jazzy score. <laughs> well, yeah. So I think it's really interesting to think about this movie having a sort of second life in America that is so disconnected from the original intent. I mean, it completely makes sense that in the late 60s, people were into this movie, right? I mean, great stoner media. Yeah, and it's like right before the Manson stuff, and like this kind of like, ooh, Satan. That makes sense. But it also is divorcing it from the actual like intellectual argument that Christensen is trying to make, even if he's kind of compromising his own argument with some of the material. Treating it more like a spectacle. Yes. And that also is in keeping with some of this, like, late 60s sort of stoner slash psychedelic slash underground culture, which wouldn't have been as interested in a movie from 1922 that was like, let me tell you my serious thoughts about witches. But also, even though you have a lot of women who are very sexually liberated or living in sort of transgressive modes, a lot of those hippie type people were really sexist, including fucking William S. Burroughs, right? So turning this object into a sort of low-key pornographic spectacle, I think kind of makes sense. And I'm glad that it has been restored to its original yes. form. You yeah, know? There's, I mean, you can just watch it on YouTube. There's an essay on Criterion, mostly just talking about like Benjamin Christensen's life, but it talks at the end a bit about how this film is a likely inspiration for a lot of classic horror movies, which I find really interesting because yeah. it's kind of hard to pick that stuff apart because we're so used to seeing witchcraft imagery that it just sort of fades into nothingness. But it kind of talks about Rosemary's Baby came out the same year as this was re-released, so 1968. But one thing that I find really interesting is that it said it seems like it might have been an influence on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is not a comparison I would have thought, but it actually is a really good point when I was thinking about it because Texas Chainsaw Massacre, obviously, mostly it's the chainsaws, but 
it's set in this like rural house which is just disgusting and has all this like meat hanging up and weird torture instruments and stuff and it's like (laughs) you're right that looks so similar to all these like disgusting witch houses and torture chambers that they have in this film and I was like that came out in 1974 I can easily imagine that Toby Hooper saw Hexen like I'm sure he did and was like I'm gonna borrow a little bit of that for my weird rural house full of freaky chainsaw guys (laughs) (laughs) yeah you never know what long afterlife a piece of art will have. Just imagining like weird open <laughs> Benjamin Christensen being like seeing Texas Chainsaw Massacre and being like, <laughs> what have I wrought? <laughs> yeah, it's not one of my favorites. But uh yeah, this movie, really fascinating, really fun, so intellectually interesting, but also, you know, you get to see some people, you know, kissing Satan on his but which where else can you say that that there's some stop motion demons <laughs> oh yeah so as you said you can this can be watched pretty much anywhere criterion has a great restoration on their streaming service but yeah we highly recommend and yeah we will be back in early january with our best movies of 2022 episode um we are both catching up with 2022 titles at the moment and are having a great time watching some great movies and some not great movies that other people have highly acclaimed. Yeah, this is the time of year when Morgan watches a lot of Oscar hopefuls and then tells me which ones I don't have to watch because actually they suck, which is very helpful. Yes, I do like to provide a service. So if you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do so at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We, of course, greatly appreciate all of your support. We'll have another bonus episode up on there at some point soon you can also find the podcast on instagram at overinvested podcast and gavia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find my work in the daily dot you can find my film stuff on letterboxd at hello taylor and you can find me on tumblr at hello taylor yes and so you can find me on letterboxd at ml davies i haven't been watching a ton but i am updating with my sort of 2022 catch up. I am also on Instagram at Morgan Lee Davies and the podcast in addition to Instagram is on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.